Today's reading is from Genesis chapter 14, the first 16 verses, and you'll find it on page 12 of the Church Bible. Genesis 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemeba, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Susim in Ham, the Emim in Shave Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admar, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Belah, that is Zor, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Anah, these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobar, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. This is the word of the Lord. Pip, thank you so much for reading for us um, a great passage, perhaps not one you would choose to read, but um. Uh, part of God's good word. Uh, let's pray as we begin. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Father God, we do ask that as we uh, look at your word now, you would help us to see more of uh, Jesus. 
what it means to know him, what it means to uh, serve and follow him. Would you uh, speak to us through your powerful word that we might love Jesus more and serve him better. In his name we pray. Amen. If the last couple of years have taught us anything, we've been reminded we are not in control. Some people have been slow to learn the lesson. Others, it seems, are still in a state of panic. But you and me not being in control is not the same thing as everything being out of control. Uh, And this morning, these uh, 16 verses, they are a profoundly encouraging truth, especially when things seem out of control. Uh, But we'll need to do just a a little bit of digging, so I I hope you'll be kind of switched on, um, trying to work out who these names are, what's going on, to, to dig down and see why we need to hear these truths. Uh, Just uh, this week, as I was uh, preparing Genesis 14, I came across some suggested sermon titles for these chapters. Uh, For chapter 13, they had Abram had a lot to lose. And chapter 14, they went for Abram had a lot to gain. And they suggested chapter 15 could be Abram had a lot to learn. That might be pushing it a bit too much. Uh, But what is this chapter about, though? It's pretty easy to see what's going on, even with the the long names, but why is it here? I take it it's not just telling us what happened, although it is true. It's not, as I read this week, a sermon on how to rescue a brother who's fallen into sin, though there may be some helpful truths to apply to a situation like that. Why is it here in Genesis? Well, Genesis has a lot of firsts, as you would expect for the first book in the Bible. And this morning, we get the first mention of kings, but no sooner do we get the first mention of kings than we get the first mention of war in the Bible. The conflict of Cain and Abel has escalated. And it's into this context of warring kings. God works an unlikely rescue through his appointed man, for an undeserving people. We're seeing how God works in his world. So let's dial back around 4,000 years and notice, first of all, behind the scenes, the Lord uses a terrifying enemy to move his pieces into play. You'll see that's the, the, the first heading on the outline. If you want a slightly shorter heading for verses 1 to 12, we could go for King Chaos. King Chaos. If we've been listening in over the last few weeks, uh, chapter 14 may feel a little different to what's come before. We've had the Lord God calling Abram from his home country to leave his family and journey to Canaan. We've had the earth-shattering promises of a people, a place, a name, rule, and blessing. A blessing not just to Abram, but through Abram to all nations. But then Abraham stumbles at the first hurdle and goes to Egypt when there's famine. Uh, Then Lot makes the terrible decision too. He he lives by sight and not by faith as he goes off to Sodom. But despite human sin, God's promises remain on track. Uh, So how does this story about kings going to battle fit in? And what's it doing here? What's it got to do with Abraham? Uh, Well, first of all, we're introduced to two groups of kings. 
And you see how the, the scene is all set up for a battle royale. Verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedalaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admar, Shemabah, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. And so it's four kings against five kings, we get that. And to help us uh, just get our, our, our heads around it, it's helpful to have a sense of uh, where this is going on. Um, so we need a bit of a backdrop, so maybe we could have the first map. There we go. Uh, I wonder if we can see that. There we go. So um, we've got the ancient Near East here, and can you see all the way over on the east, we've got Elam. Do you see that? That's where uh, Kedalioma's from. So all the way out uh, over in Elam. Uh, he's clearly the chief king of this uh, alliance of uh, kings, that the, the five kings have been paying taxes to him. Uh, we see down in verse 17, just uh, beyond our passage, he's the one uh, calling the shots. And then, uh, do you see there's, uh, there's Babylonia, there's Babylon there, that's the same area as Shinar, where Amraphel is from. Uh, perhaps he's mentioned first in this list, not because it's deliberately in alphabetical order, but because we've already heard about Shinar so far. I doubt Genesis 10.10 is top of anyone's list of Bible verses to memorize, uh, but it tells us uh, Babel is in Shinar. The beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne in the land of Shinar. Uh, do you remember the Tower of Babel in chapter 11? It's on the plain in the land of Shinar, uh, Babylon. Uh, and, and Goyim, uh, in verse 1, just means nations, so it could be even further afield. So four kings from, from, from miles away, uh, four kings on the warpath. Uh, verse 4, we can probably ditch that map for now. Verse 4 again, 12 years, here's the flashback. 12 years they had served Kedalaema, but in the 13th year, they've had enough, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Kedalaema and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Kainaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavakiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Malachites, and also the Amorites, who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. So again, we'll, we'll just have another map. This one, I think, I'm afraid, is slightly less clear to see, so you may have to go back on YouTube and try to work it out. That's slightly more zoomed in uh, on the promised uh, land. And if you can't quite see it, well, uh, this alliance of five kings, they're ba based on the kind of southeast uh, edge of the Dead Sea. And so that the kind of rebel kings, five kings, we could call them the rebel alliance, just to make it easier. And they stop paying taxes to Kedalaema and his cronies. Let's just call them the evil empire again, just to make it easier. Uh, I'm not saying the Rebel Alliance are the goodies. And I'm not saying this is just fan fiction. No, this is real historical uh, truth. Real people, real places, real uh, politics. Anyway, if you can make it out, the, the evil empire sweep out of the north. And basically, they smash everyone in their path. They're just annihilating everyone, even strong foes like the Rephaim. And they loop down all the way to the south as far as El Paran before heading back up, looping up to the Sidim Valley. And it's there this battle happens, the battle of nine armies. And surprise, surprise, Kedalaema and his crew win. Verse 8. 
Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim, with Kedalaema, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. So the kind of summary is the rebel alliance lose. Now they're either killed in battle, fall into tar pits, or literally run for the hills. But we might get to the end of verse 11 and think, well, that's all very interesting, very exciting. So what? Again, what's it got to do with Abraham? Well, I wonder if we can spot what happens in verse 12. They also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Little old Lot gets caught up in this whole affair. Do you remember he moved near to Sodom, chapter 13? Now he's living in Sodom. He's taken captive. As far as these rampaging kings are concerned, Lot's part of Sodom now. Didn't take him long, did it? And here's how this saga connects with the overarching story. Now just look down at our passage again, and can anyone spot who's not mentioned at all? It's a little tricky to see what's not there, I know, but I think it is quite a deliberate ploy. You see, we're not told anything about the Lord God here. The first 11 verses are deliberately godless. But what do we hear a lot about? Almost kind of at pains to hear a lot about. We hear a lot about kings, don't we? In fact, you might want to guess how many times the word king or kings comes up in our reading. 21 times. You see, this is the, the world stage here in front of us. These, they might not look like it to us, but these are the big name players of their day. These are kind of Biden, Putin, Xi Jinping. And it's like they're all ganging up and waging war. Things are really beginning to kick off. These are the headlines. And there's no mention of the Lord in these verses because that is what it looks like from the world's perspective. The movers and shakers are the ones in power and in control. And the Lord God, well, he seems just like a, a sideline or a footnote. Who looks like they're in control in Genesis 14? It's these kings, isn't it? And, and Lot just looks like he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. How do these kings having a go at each other have anything to do with the story so far in Genesis? Well, verse 12 shows us how the stories connect. And actually, there's a big problem because when we think about it, Lot is the only family Abraham's got at this point apart from Sarah. Uh, we're told again and again, Lot is Abraham's relative. He's his nephew, his kinsman, his family. God said all the nations will be blessed through Abraham's family, but he's not said how yet. So that the very promises of God seem to be at stake. What will happen next? Well, before we get there, isn't it such a comfort to see the Lord God moving kings, using them to get all his pieces exactly where he wants them? He can even use Lot's foolish decision from chapter 13 for his good purposes. Of course, it doesn't excuse sin. It's not saying war is a good thing. 
but it is underlining how God is still active in his world from the minuscule to the massive. Maybe we're concerned with events on the world stage. What's going to happen in the Ukraine? What are going to be the knock-on effects? Uh, Storm clouds gathering in Eastern Europe. Troops being mobilized. Countries are posturing. And yet Genesis 14 is deeply reassuring. Behind the scenes, the Lord uses a terrifying enemy to move his pieces into play. We don't need to fear. You see, all of this is, is basically setting the stage for Abraham to step in. And so secondly, this morning, we see how the Lord's appointed ruler unexpectedly crushes the enemy and graciously rescues his people. The Lord's appointed ruler surprisingly, unexpectedly crushes the enemy, graciously rescues his people. Again, if you wanted a shorter heading for verses 13 to 16, you could go for a band of brothers. Uh, Here we see God's good purpose in his sovereign control of the nations. You see, it's not just control, it is a purposeful control that God has. So we'll pick up the story again, verse 12. They also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abraham the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Anna. These were allies of Abraham. When Abraham heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobar, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions, and the women, and the people. Abraham gets wind of his nephew's capture and leads this expedition force off in pursuit. And uh, if we could make out anything on those maps, we'll we'll grasp the lengths Abraham is willing to go to to get Lot back. Dan is basically the kind of northern edge of the promised land. Although it's not going to be called Dan uh, for a few centuries. Again, it's reminding us this is the land God's people are going to inherit. And by going to the northern border, Abraham is driving the enemy out of the promised land. He's willing to go to extreme lengths. Hobar in verse 15 is miles and miles away, even further north than Damascus. They are well and truly ejected. They're literally driven off the map. And it's not expected, is it? Abraham's victory is unexpected for two reasons. Firstly, Lot doesn't deserve rescuing. Lot, Lot was living in Sodom. If I was Abraham, I might have thought, you know what? That Lot chose to live there. And now he's just reaping what he's sown. Let, let him suffer. He brought it on himself. Or uh, Abraham could have argued to himself, you know, it's just, it's just wise to stay out of the situation. They've, they've passed me by. I'd, I'd better stay home and protect Sarah. I mean, after all, she is my first responsibility. I, I don't want to put my family in danger. And, and after all, God allowed this to happen. I'm not going to interfere with what God wants to do with Lot. But Abraham is living by faith. He goes to great lengths to seek and to save the captive Lot. It's emphasized once again, Lot is family. He's a kinsman of Abraham and he's rescued. The Lord rescues undeserving Lot from captivity 
through his appointed man of blessing. And secondly, it's unexpected because Abraham, even with his 318 trained men and his allies, is still hugely outnumbered against four kings and their armies who've defeated everyone in their path so far. It's it's a, a surprising victory, an unexpected victory. Not quite mission impossible, but definitely mission improbable. Uh, We're not told the size of Kedaleoma's troops, but the point is 318 is massively smaller. Uh, There is, though, to be sure, uh, the idea of a a crack commando unit. The the word for led forth in verse 14 is the term for drawing your sword. And as he attacks by night, Abraham is joined by Anna, Eshkol, and Mamre. Clearly some are beginning to side with Abraham. And as we'll see, they're, they're blessed for doing so. But against all the odds, even with allies, Abraham is uh, victorious. I wonder how Lot would have felt as he's uh, kind of being taken north. Was he reflecting on how foolish he was to have moved to Sodom? Probably not as he moves back there again. Uh, maybe feeling powerless. I'm guessing he was relieved and grateful after Abraham's rescue mission. But we're simply not told how Lot feels. You see, we don't need to know. The focus is all on Abraham, isn't it? And we've seen all these kings fighting, but Abraham is the true king of Canaan. God's already promised him all of the land, the end of chapter 13. But Abraham doesn't look like a king. He's not called a king, but the point is he's the one God's giving the land to. And then Abraham doesn't look like a king, but he acts like one. He's not called a king, but what does he do as the ruler of the promised land? He rescues undeserving Lot through an unexpected victory. And so God's promises aren't thwarted. And now God is the ultimate ruler. We'll see that in verse 20 and look at it more next week. But God rescues through his appointed ruler. Now it might be uh, we're listening in and we're, we're not yet entirely convinced of this appointed ruler idea. So I want us just to do a little bit of a quick fast forward. Can anyone think of another time where God's appointed ruler is vastly outnumbered and yet wins the most unexpected of victories and drives the enemy out of the promised land? It may just be that some of us are thinking of Gideon. About 900 years later, once God's people are in the promised land, they're ruled by judges. And in Judges 7, Gideon has his army whittled down to 300. Not not far off 318. He's up against uh, an enemy whose forces are described as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. He divides his forces by night and wins a decisive victory. And then we read on another 150 years later and Israel now have kings. We discover King David at Ziklag in 1 Samuel 30. David's family have been taken captive by the Amalekites. David and his men find the city burned, their wives, sons, daughters, all gone. David has an army of 400 men, again a similar number. He meets an escapee who who tips him off as to the enemy's whereabouts. The enemy are described as spread abroad over all the land. And once again, the Lord's appointed ruler crushes the enemy and rescues his people against ridiculous odds. There's this repeating theme in the Old Testament of God's appointed ruler willing to put their life on the line, 
against seemingly unstoppable and insurmountable enemies, they win a massive turnaround victory. And in so doing, they liberate God's people. They take captivity captive. In fact, King David looks back on Genesis 14 when he pens Psalm 110. We'll think about it a bit more again next week. But just listen to verses 5 to 7 from Psalm 110. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs, or literally the head, over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook, by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. It's the picture of someone fulfilling Genesis 3.15, crushing the head of the serpent, doing away with evil. And as David looks back, he sees in Abraham a little foretaste in this defeat of the kings. Uh, David looks back and, and sees how Abraham did some enemy crushing and rescuing. He sees how God has done it in his life. And he also looks forward to God's eternal king. One who will defeat the worst of enemies in the most decisive and yet unexpected of ways. And in so doing, rescue an undeserving people and keep God's promises on track. See, Genesis 14 points us to David, but he points us on further still to Jesus. All the stories are pointing to him. I wonder if we're beginning to see how, how that is true. You see, where else do we see God's king not recognized as king? And nevertheless, he is God's true king. And when they act, they rescue an undeserving people so God's promises aren't thwarted. They, they achieve the most unexpected and surprising of victories. It's all Jesus, all pointing to him, like a, a stone dropped into a pool in Genesis 14 and the, and the waves ripple out across the centuries until the fulfillment arrives in Jesus. Just listen to Romans 5 verse 6. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God's appointed ruler winning the most unexpected of victories to liberate an undeserving people. Genesis 14 gives us that, that flavor of a, that heroic, other-person-centeredness driving Jesus to the cross. God engineered all of history. He even uses terrible enemies. Also his appointed ruler, his one man of blessing, is at the right place at the right time. Jesus is God's true king, even though most people don't think he is, and at the moment it doesn't look like he is. And as the true king, he rescues his people. All of us are a lot like Lot, aren't we? Perhaps more than we care to admit. We don't deserve Jesus' rescue. And we've turned away from God. And yet when he died on the cross, Jesus took the punishment we deserve so we might be forgiven. So we might be rescued, so we might be brought back home. Maybe you're just listening in today as an interested observer and do you realize you're in captivity? It's the language the Bible uses. We may feel free, but in reality we've turned our backs on God. We're on the run. Or it could be we know we're lost and helpless. Like Lot, we, we're aware we're reaping what we've sown. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came to liberate captives. He came to bring true freedom. He came to deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
He came to bind the strong man and plunder his goods. It's talking about how he defeats Satan at the cross and rescues those in bondage to sin. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ, God's true king, died for the ungodly. God is still ruling all of history, even global events and wars. All so he can win back his people through his appointed ruler, his one man of blessing, Jesus Christ. Have we grasped this? God has put you where you are, even using your sin, even using world events, so people can find rescue in Jesus. Maybe we've literally moved country because of political turmoil. Perhaps we're fearful of what the future holds. And when we read the news, we're alarmed by headlines. And yet there is one meta story over them all, a a true metaverse, if you will. And it's all about God rescuing an undeserving people through his man of blessing, who is the true king, even if it doesn't look like it. Is that not wonderful news? Our friends might not think Jesus is God's true king, but he is. They may not think they need rescuing, but they do. So let us thank and praise God that Jesus is the king. And he rescues an undeserving people like me, like you, through the cross. Let's pray together. He also brought back his kinsman, Lot. Father God, thank you for this picture of your true appointed ruler rescuing an undeserving people. Thank you that you always keep your promises and thank you for how it points us to Jesus. Please would we be more grateful for his rescue of us through his death on the cross. Would we recognize his right rule over the whole world and over our lives? And would you use us to point people to the rescue found in Jesus, your gracious, loving, sovereign, ruling King of kings. In his name we pray. Amen.